0: Well, thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. It's always a pleasure to connect with CS fellow leaders, especially those who are navigating the exciting world of B2B SaaS. And you know, one of the things I really appreciate about this type of conversations is the chance to dive into not just the technical aspects of our work, but also the personal journeys that shape our perspective. And speaking of personal journeys, I came across something interesting in my research about you, and it turns out we have something else in common rather than uh, customer success. We are both parents navigating the challenges and joys of parenting. I've got one daughter who's already teaching me more about management than any book or webinar ever could. And I hear you are a proud dad of three daughters. That's quite an amazing experience. I bet I can barely manage one to say so. How has this journey of fatherhood reshaped your approach to leadership in B two B SaaS space?
1: Yeah, quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I think the I think the biggest lesson I've learned as a parent, and my journey is kind of unique in itself. Uh, I'm happy to talk through that, but. The biggest lesson that I've learned, I think, is being in charge is hard, right? There are a million decisions to be made when we first we went through the foster foster to adopt process. And when we first got our girls, they were four, three, and a newborn. So we had a wide array of personalities and and in, in life at that point. But ultimately, what we found is we were a hundred times busier by adding three kids than we were when it was just my wife and I. And there were a million decisions being made at any given time. I'm hungry, can I go outside? My sister stole my toy, right? But what we found was pretty early on that our kids were really capable. So by the time they were five, they were making their own breakfast and they were packing their own lunches and cleaning up their rooms and doing all the things that that we otherwise would have been doing. So ultimately, I think... it. it we had to give them a framework to do that, right? Like to to work through arguments and things like that. But ultimately what I think really aligns with managing people in a company is you have to give them a framework, you have to work with them, but you ultimately empower them to make decisions and you empower them to go solve their own problems. What this is going to do is it's going to reduce the decisions that you have to make as the manager. And decision exhaustion will start to go away, right? When you're making a thousand decisions a day, it's a lot more exhausting than when you're making 20 decisions a day. I would think that that's probably the biggest parallel that I've found, but being in charge is hard.
0: I still, I never thought of implementing a proper framework. So I will have to do a similar thing with my, with my kids as, as well. <laughs> Starting at a new company as a CSM, especially in the first 30 days, must be a bit like diving into parroting. a lot of adapting and learning on the fly. How do these early days shape your approach to customer success? I think
1: what we have to realize is that, and I think I even wrote a blog about this. I'm happy to send it over, but I think what, what I realized pretty early on is curveballs can create home runs right just because somebody throws a curveball at you doesn't mean you can't hit the ball uh, i think our our adoption journey was very similar but even when you're starting a new co- a new company or joining a new company the reality is, is is you spend a bunch of time interviewing and having conversations and that's kind of the honeymoon phase right you're asking questions they're asking questions you're getting to know each other but ultimately when you get hired on or you start the company you're going to realize that that two week to six week interview time period was nothing in the grand scheme of things and there's a million other things to learn so I think that's where thinking long term kind of shines through if you're thinking about it short term when you join a company or start a company I think the challenge is at the first sight of something unexpected you're going to try and find a way to get out so you have to be prepared for those curveballs you have to be pre- prepared for those situations that you didn't expect or learning something that you you thought was otherwise not true or true you just have to be prepared to to work through those long term
0: you mentioned about learning in the first uh, in the first in the first month in the first weeks of uh, taking a new uh, cs challenge how do you how do you prioritize the learning process because you have to talk with so many stakeholders you have to and besides you have maybe your team maybe your peers you have to go through the product you have to go through processes if they do exist where do you start what's the most important thing yeah
1: the key i think is is to know what fires to put out what fires to let burn and what what fires to let smolder right so you have to you have to prioritize, and I think the way that you do that is when you first join, you're going to learn about the problems really early on, right? Everyone's going to tell you the problems. No one's going to tell you the successes. That's just human nature. We have an issue. We have a, a tendency to talk about issues rather than solutions. So I think really the first week or two is really spent having conversations with everybody in the organization. Anybody that's currently in CS, that's customer-facing, the sales team, the management team, product team, what are you hearing? Having those conversations with with the individual contributors and the leaders of the company are are really going to give you that problem list. And then the problem list becomes prioritizing. So it, it becomes figuring out, again, what fires absolutely have to be put out right now. What fires you can kind of let burn over here that aren't as important and what fires to, to kind of let smolder and, and, and they're, they're kind of building up. You'll, you'll quickly learn your priority list just by conversations. People are pretty open and transparent, especially about, about problems that affect them.
0: What I read from what you said takes me to focus and i think this is one of the most important uh, things in mean, necessarily in we're not only in a customer success role and i know that you second second this how do you apply this idea of focus to enhance the customer success and scale the business effectively
1: yeah i'm a big proponent of focus the reality is if you want to do anything with excellence you have to focus right And I have dozens of tricks and tactics that you can use and happy to talk through a few of those, but-
0: Please do that.
1: Yeah, the overarching message is if you wanna do something high quality, you simply can't multitask. And that's coming from someone who loves to multitask, right? It's very much in my nature to work on 10 different things at once, but I have to rein myself in and, and realize that if I really wanna get something done to the highest quality, it's, it, it all comes down to focus. So it's probably easier when we're talking about focus, it's probably easier to start backwards or start at the end and work our way backwards. Why is focus important? Let's start with the end result, right? The end result is I wanna get more done and I wanna get it done to a higher quality and I wanna get it done efficiently, right? So if that's the end goal, what prevents you from getting to that? Usually it's internal and external distractions, right? So what are those distractions? Decisions are a big one, which we've already talked about today. Making lots and lots and lots of decisions can be can be distracting and, and take away from your focus. Other work is constantly being is constantly competing to get done. Meetings are a big, big distraction. So what do we do to eliminate those distractions? This is ultimately where we come full circle. So decisions, we just have to make less of them, right? We have to empower others to make decisions. We have to reduce decision exhaustion. Here's This is one of my tips, right? One of my tips around decision exhaustion is I have a uniform that I wear every day. And we talked about this off camera on the way in, and it's not literally a uniform, right? But it's I have this hat that I wear five or six days a week. I have every color T-shirt in this brand. I have, you know, so I don't have to make the decision when I first wake up, what am I wearing today? It's just one less decision that I have to have to make. I eat, and some people, foodies are gonna be mad at me. I eat the same thing every day for lunch. I don't have to make a decision. I eat the same thing. It takes me 15 minutes to eat and it's done, right? So I'm eliminating those decisions, which reduces my decision exhaustion. Other work creeping in at the wrong times, how do we solve that? That's, that was the second one. And I have a one-tab rule. So what I mean by that is when I have something that I need to get done, I will pull one tab off my browser and only focus on that one tab for a set period of time or until the task is complete, depending on the priority of it. So, and then I set my computer to do not disturb, right? So no more like six hundred tabs across the top. You're bouncing around. You're getting notifications here and there and everywhere, right? One tab is is kind of my my. I'm gonna zero in on this and focus only on this this aspect. And then the third was meetings, and I think. A lot of people talk about this and it's almost cliche to talk about it, but it's like, just reduce the recurring meetings that you have on your calendar, right? Time block, set specific blocks on your calendar for when you're going to get work done versus when you're going to meet with other people. One thing that I know for sure, based on scientific research, is 10 a.m. is the most productive hour mentally for people in the normal workday, right? Right it's been proven over and over and over many times so 10 a.m. on my calendar is blocked no one can book 10 a.m. because i know that that's my time to go in and and get work done for that 60 minute period so i think there's a million ways to optimize output but i think focus is the vehicle that gets us there
0: it sounds it sounds Coming from a customer's, coming from a person who works in customer success, I know that focus is important, but I hear very often multitasking. So I have to take this information and try to see how, well, I actually ask you, how do you apply it in yeah. your CS role? Because for me, it sounds very hard to, very hard to do that. Because sure. you you have a lot of uh, client meetings, uh, there's always an emergency in customer success. There's always a fire drill to handle. So, yeah. hey, a bit deeper into how we, to organize, for instance, your day in order to keep this this focus.
1: We we have to go back to the which fires do we let smolder, which fires do we put out, and which fires do we let burn, right? There is always a fire in customer success, absolutely. And these rules are going to get broken, right? But if you stick to these rules 90% of the time, you will be more efficient. So the 10 a.m. thing is a non-negotiable for me. Unless someone calls me, because I won't see it, right? If I don't have Slack open, and I don't have my email open, and I don't have our help, help desk open and I don't have you know if I don't have all these things open and I'm only focusing on one thing the only way somebody's going to get a hold of me is call me or text me but I probably won't see it if it's text they'll have to call me right so that's a non-negotiable for me that's my one hour in the day no one can disturb me during the work day and I can get things done I can narrow in and focus but at the end of the day I think It really comes down to, you have to set the rules for yourself to be productive. There are always gonna be distractions. There's always gonna be a fire. There's always gonna be someone calling you, trying to get your attention. A million things compete for your attention every day. It's the the question is, what are you gonna give your attention to? So while it is difficult for sure, it's absolutely difficult, in the sense that, that there's so many things competing for your time, you have to outline those rules that you're going to follow and you have to follow them. If you don't follow them, it's not a controlled experiment and you don't know if they work or not. So follow those for, for 30 days and see if they work. And my guess is you'll come out being more productive at the end of those 30 days.
0: In my, and in my case, the thing that I've learned from being a mom is that, okay, focus is one thing. I cannot do my, I think I was a multitasking person uh, before being a mom, but now I think it is, I think it's a combination between focus and multitasking. I've learned that I can do so many things in five minutes and I'm not wasting, wasting it. And I think I've uh, learned that time is the most valuable resource that I have, and it is very limited. So yeah, indeed, I decide very well on where do I consume my, uh, my energy. So I do share your, uh, your beliefs.
1: I I love that. Time is, time is your most valuable resource that you can offer, right? To anyone, because uh, again, there's so many things competing for your time, including your family and your kids. You have to make time, time for that. So I'm with you. I agree.
0: And besides, besides this, another thing that I had to adapt is with unpredictability. I was the person who was always doing a plan to a plan to a backup plan. I had backup plans to backup plans. Where I realized that what the kid basically learned is that I have to deal and adapt to all those uh, situations. Now I wanna I and I do see a parallel. So I want to ask you, how do you adapt to surprises or shifts in strategy when it comes to customer success? Because priorities yeah. do change. How do you do this?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I think it goes back to curveballs can produce home runs, right? I mean, some of the craziest curveballs I've been thrown in life have produced home runs, have been the greatest thing that, that that have happened to me, including my kids. And like, I'll go back to that for one second, which is... When my wife and I first started our foster care journey, we we brought home a brand new little baby girl, right? Five months later, the state called us and said, can you take her two sisters, right? Un- unexpectedly, out of the blue, we had no idea that that was even an option on the table. It was a massive curveball, right? We We didn't know what to do at first. And then we said, of course, it's our two sisters. We have to have to do this, right? Unexpected on our side, greatest reward ever. Same thing with customer success and and with business in general. You're going to get curveballs, right? Like it's going to happen. You're going to get unexpected situations, good news, bad news. You know, 50% of the time, the thing that you expect is going to happen happens. 25% of the time you're going to be pleasantly surprised and 25% of the time you're going to be let down or or discouraged. You just have to keep going. Like I tell my girls all the time, there are two options in life. You either give up or you keep going. And if giving up isn't a realistic option, then you keep going, right? It really narrows it down for you you when you boil it down to those two options.
0: You've been working in different uh, industries from real estate, health tech, marketing, or automation. I'm curious, are customer success challenges unique to each industry or do they overlap? Are there key differences, similarities that you've noticed?
1: I think the challenges are the same, right? Challenges and goals are the same. There's certainly different strategies or tactics that you can use in each industry, but at the end of the day, CS wants less churn and more customer growth over time, right? Like when you really when you really look at it as, as key ingredients at the very end or key outputs at the end, those are the things that we want in customer success. So I think usually the way you get there is more customer usage, faster time to value, enhanced value over time. I think it's universal, right? It's it's we sometimes overcomplicate these things, and it's something that they're not. And the reality is, is if you pull a thousand customer success teams and say, "Here's a multiple choice question: of What is most important?" Everyone's going to say, "I want less churn and I want more customer growth," right? It's just that's that's how customer success works.
0: What are the biggest obstacles in gaining actionable insights for the CS team and how do you overcome those?
1: Yeah, I think this is a super important question and something that not, not a lot of people are asking or they might be asking it in slightly the wrong way. So what I mean by that is everyone talks about the famous quote, right? What isn't measured isn't managed. I think as an industry, we've kind of outgrown this quote because everything to a degree is measured today, right? I think the challenge that most people are going through is it's not organized enough for them to understand the measurements or to have the key insights. So you have to get the metrics into one place that you're looking for. Chances are they're being measured already. So you have to get them to a place where you can easily digest those and they're visible to everyone. And for the items that are less quantifiable, like customer sentiment, right? That's a good one. I think AI is helping us with that already and I think it'll make it a lot a lot better over time. But you just have to capture that. You have to have your CS team capture those sentiments across all your customer interactions and that has to feed into the data model. Most of the time, people just aren't good at seeing the data that's being measured. And it's not their fault, right? They're not, as a CS leader or as a CS manager or team lead or something like that, right, you're not a systems engineer. Your job is not to build these systems so you can easily see the data in most cases, Uh, but it is someone's job to do that or it should be someone's job to do that. So we just have to work with those people to get the data that we need to make informed decisions in the right place where it's easily accessible for the right people.
0: I often find that because we are chasing, we want, we want numbers. We want to measure everything from everywhere. Everything is important. And then when we look at the data, we can't answer the question and know what and now yeah. what do we do with those with all the numbers that we have with all the reports how do how do we make sure that we are not only because tracking is part of the problem and then what you do with the results and what the data tells you is another thing how do yep. we make sure that uh, we are reading the data correct what do we need
1: you have to measure consistently. That's the challenge. That's a challenge that a lot of people face, right? Is the data isn't consistent, which is ultimately going to change where the, the goalpost is, right? So as long as you're measuring data consistent, in my experience, even if you're measuring it wrong to some degree, there's some margin of error there. Even if you're measuring it wrong, if you're measuring it consistently over time, you should see gaps shrinking where they should shrink, gaps growing where they should grow, right? But I think that's the challenge is everyone wants perfect data. Perfect data isn't real. You know, it's it's kind of like the unicorn that everybody's chasing. It's not exactly a real thing most of the time, especially in smaller companies, right? When you're talking about a company size of, under a hundred employees with $10 million ARR or something like that, like your data is just not mature enough to be consistent and in in a way that you can make every decision off of. You should try to make as many data driven decisions as possible. But at the end of the day, you, you just have to measure that data consistently and see incremental increases and getting better.
0: Speaking about data, I want to speak about tools that basically help us extract this data. How crucial is it to choose and use the right tools and the technology stack in customer success? And how much does this impact the effectiveness of a CS team?
1: Well, I think it's difficult today to choose the right tools in many cases, right? Like it's just, there's so much software out there making the right decision is really hard but i also find in the customer success world onboarding world like us right that it's probably the most undervalued underfunded team in an organization When you look at sales and engineering budgets are massive compared to, to CS budgets still today, I think the market's coming around, but it's still, still a big discrepancy today, but that's really why we created onboard is like, I was looking around and I saw that customer onboarding teams typically used Excel files or generic project management to onboard. So I, I figured there had to be a better way. And if there wasn't, then we were going to create it, but. What I typically find, and just like a recommendation, I guess, for the listeners, is in any industry, in any department, in any department org, right, is solutions that are geared for the specific problem that you're trying to solve are likely going to cause more efficiency gain than wider solutions. And... I, I often equate it to bowling and I'm not I'm not personally a bowler, but I know that if I'm bowling down a lane that has rails on it, I'm not going to go out of bounds. If I'm bowling down a, a lane that doesn't have rails on it, I'm going to be out of bounds. So that's the same way I think about it with software. If you're going with a super wide solution that can do everything for everyone, you're going to find that it does nothing for anyone. When you're bowling down a lane, or Or using a software that's specific to the problem that you're trying to solve, usually you're going to be able to solve that problem. Now, I think that there's I think there's something to be said about platforms versus point solutions, but I also think that there's a reason that point solutions exist today, right? Because they solve a problem. So I think from from an impact perspective, in the customer success world, in the onboarding world, and the support world, technology makes you more efficient. It's the same across every other department and every other org. So super crucial, unfortunately, it's harder to make a decision than it should be in today's world. But I think that'll all change over time, right? I think as as more software providers focus on customer success, as a soul or an organization that they want to support right or department they want to support i think it's going to become easier and more scalable to to pick the right solution
0: i'm i'm just curious now because you mentioned that it's hard to pick the right solution how do you how do you take your decisions how how are sas products convince you to try them out what do they do what do they need to do I'll tell
1: you one thing, it's rarely LinkedIn email or in-mail, despite getting 60,000 in-mails a day. But uh, I think the way that I've always purchased, and and the interesting part about that question, I've kind of found myself falling into that role across every company that I've ever been at in the last 14 years as enterprise software purchaser, right? And, and kind of the way that I've done it is I usually identify the problem, design the solution, and then find the software that supports the solution. I always say purpose before technology, meaning like if we're solving this one problem, what is the ideal solution for that? Now let's go find technology to support that. So again, it's it's working backwards. It's the same thing we, we did earlier with focus, right? Is, you kind of have to work backwards in that scenario of what am I really trying to solve what's the ideal solution and and what can support that that framework or that architecture that i'm I'm putting in place and then you just go out and do a lot of demos and and ask a lot of questions and and ultimately hope that you make the right decision
0: and how do you get funded for this how do you take the yeah. so leadership buy-in for this That's yeah what I and, think that CS leaders do speak about. It's hard for them to to be funded. And you also mentioned that CS yeah. is actually the team that it's the most unfunded in compare. If you compare it with sales, for instance.
1: Yeah. So I'm gonna tie this into how do you okay. So how do you make the right pitch to get the right software, get the budget for the software. I'm going to make the same argument for headcount here. And I'm going to make the same argument for if you as an individual want to move to a different role in the company, let's say you want to go from a success team lead to a manager or director, right? It's all the same process. And what's funny about this is I literally just had this conversation on Monday with with a CS team lead that wanted to move to director. at a different company, right? And it was a connection that we had made and I had a conversation with them. So ultimately it's the same process. So the process is you have to evaluate the problem first. How big is this problem that we're trying to solve? And is it a legitimate problem? And you have to quantify that. And it may not be as simple as if we solve this problem, we gain two customers and we retain two more customers, right? It may not be that straightforward a math, but if it is this problem takes 20 hours a month away from our team, on average, our team makes X dollars per hour. If we can reduce that by 75%, here is the tangible value of, of, of what we're trying to do. After you identify and quantify the problem, it then becomes make it easy for the person that you have to go get budget from to make the decision. And the way that you do that is you outline the problem, outline the cost of the problem, outline the solution, outline the solution cost, and make it extremely easy for them to say yes. So in moving from a team lead to a director, what you have to tell the the person that's, that's making that decision and what you have to convince them of is, I'm going to be more valuable by being in a director level than I am in a team lead level. And you have to quantify that. If you can't quantify that, then you have to ask yourself, do I want this just because I want this, or is this what's best for the organization? Same thing when you're, when you're trying to pitch getting funding for software or getting budget for software is, do I want this because I like it, or do I want this because this is actually going to make an impact for my team and for my company and, and save us time and energy and effort down the road? So I think that's it. Is, is I see and I've seen it a million times, but it's, hey, we really need this software. And I say, great, we need the software. Why do we need it? Well, we have this problem over here. Great, how much, how much money or time or resource is that problem costing us? I have no idea. It's like, well, then how do you know that we're paying we need to pay for for something to solve it? Like it may be costing us fifteen minutes a month, which at the end of the day isn't worth a thousand dollars a month in software, right? So I think that's it is is I think you have to think through the problem, think through the cost savings of a solution. make sure when you're having that conversation that it's that it's actually justified and it's not. It's not a selfish decision, right? To buy it. It's a it's going to make the organization better.
0: You mentioned about Team Lint and the director's roles and positions. And I want to switch gears to another important pillar in customer success. And that's the team. We talked about, we talked about the foundation, we talked about the processes, the framework of technology. And now let's talk about the the people. What are the essential roles within a customer success team? and what stage and at what stage in you know, a company's growth do you typically see these roles emerging
1: yeah super great question different stage companies need different things or different roles i would say if you're a startup and when i say startup five people or less in customer success you're going to have generalists right that's a really small company you're going to have generalists they're going to be doing everything they're going to be onboarding customers, they're going to be managing them, they're going to be supporting them, they're going to be doing everything. That's a challenging time for sure. The end goal is what I think most people have in mind. When I am a 500 person or a 1000 person company, the team setup is going to be we're going to have onboarding over here, we're going to have customer success management here, we're going to have support here, we're going to have a layer of Ops over top of them that's making sure that they're they're the most efficient that they can possibly be, right? You have this envision. The question is when do you split? When do you start becoming specialized? I think and i I err on the side of early on that, which is once you have your fifth person in customer success, you should be thinking about splitting. And I think there's two logical paths at that stage, which is onboarding and customer success management and customer success management handles support or vice versa onboarding and they handle support and then CSMs handle the ongoing management. But that's, that's like, again, small, right? So there's five people. So from, five people to 15 or 20 people in customer success that can kind of be where you land right as you can be in that there's two roles within the department after that it splits into three so you have onboarding success management support and the way that you make that decision on on which direction to to go is based off of your specific product right if you have a product that's highly technical for onboarding and it has a ton of support questions and but your management of the customer, isn't that often, right? How does that split versus the implementation is really easy. The product is wide, anyone can onboard it themselves with the help of one or two calls from us and the support is rare, but there's this management piece of extending or adding use cases That's a whole different split of how you, you split the roles. Additionally, there's a personality piece behind this. So when you're small, five to 10 people in the, in the organization, in the CS organization, you kind of have to design based off of personalities. So the personality of someone that likes to onboard and is very good at it is a very different personality than someone that likes to manage relationships. If you have someone that's very project-focused, and I feel like I can make fun of that group a little bit because that's how I am. I'm very project-focused. If you have someone like that and you stick them in a role of a CSM where they're managing that customer for two years, let's say, they're going to, if you're lucky, you'll get two years out of them, out of that person managing relationships between people. When you're project-focused, you like to focus on projects. When you're relationship-focused, you like to be in there for a long, extended period of time, building that relationship over time. Two totally different personalities, totally different roles. You have to make sure the right people are in the right roles throughout the life cycle of that company
0: speaking about personalities so i want to ask you when you are recruiting what are those skills that are you are looking for and which is the things that which is that thing which is non negotiable and you don't hire
1: yeah. two non negotiables upfront i am absolutely and there are, here's a spoiler they're all every every skill that i have in my mind right now is a soft skill right So the two non-negotiables, self-awareness and situational awareness. So what I mean by those two things, if you are building a team and you're building a team full of people that have no self-awareness, that team is going to be very dysfunctional and not a joy to work on, right? If you're building a team full of people that have self-awareness, they know what they're good at, they know what they're not good at. Certainly helps that. Situational awareness, on the other hand, also very important. If I'm on a call and the customer is visibly angry and I'm not picking up on those cues, that's not a great personality trait to be lacking for customer success. Right? So self-awareness, situational awareness, my two non-negotiables, absolutely team has to have it or I, I can't make the hire. I'll go through kind of a few other things that I've had on previous like great teams that I've I've managed which are people that check their ego at the door, right? I'm the same way, right? You got to check your ego at the door. You can't you can't think you're the best at everything and it kind of goes along with self-awareness, but check your ego at the door, lifelong learners. I love hiring people that love to learn. I love to learn, I listen to podcasts, I listen to audiobooks, right? Like I'm constantly listening to something that I'm hoping increases my knowledge in life. But people that like to learn are, are typically great on the customer success team. And last, I'm gonna say team players, because again, it kind of comes back to if the team's not functioning well, it, it's it's really hard to hit goals, it's really hard to have success as a group in customer success if your team's not playing well together.
0: The soft skills are the most hardest to test in an interview process. What's your secret recipe? How do you find out if there is a good fit or not?
1: So through a series of situational questions. So I have a list of situational questions. And again, I'm happy to send this over If you want to share it out with your listeners as well, but I have a series of situational questions for CSMs and onboarding, onboarding specialists, where basically what I'm trying to figure out is, are you, one, are you self-aware? Are you situational aware? And then also for the split role of onboarding and CS, I'm trying to figure out, are you project focused in life or are you relationship focused in life? One of my favorite questions to ask in an interview is, it's a Saturday, midday, right? Two o'clock in the afternoon, one o'clock in the afternoon, whatever. What are you doing? Right? Very open-ended question. Can go a million different ways. But what I'm really looking for is, am I at home building a shed or am I at a friend's house watching a football game, right? So the reason that I ask that is, if I'm at home building a shed, I'm very project-focused. I have a goal, I wanna get something done. If I'm at a friend's house watching a game, I'm relationship-focused, right? I wanna spend time with my friends, and not saying people that focus on projects don't wanna spend time with their friends, but they're little indicators, right? And you ask a bunch of these questions that are all kind of related and similar, and you figure out does this person want to spend time building relationships or do they want to spend time executing projects in their own personal life? What are they interested in? And it really helps figure out which seat that person should sit in on the customer success side.
0: While you were asking this question, I was thinking, what do I do at Saturday, in a Saturday uh, day at 1, 1 p.m.? And my answer would be most probably I just had uh, lunch with with the family because we do have a strict hour at which we have lunch, and then most probably I'm trying to convince my daughter to take her noon nap, and she will refuse this. Not sure if it <laughs> brings me into project or relationship. Why oh, explaining? Yeah. I was trying to see if I'm more on a
1: project, for some. Small- you might be a rare split role where <laughs> you know you can do both. You enjoy both, so that's funny.
0: <laughs> I I wanna um, I wanna ask you what's your take on uh, learning by learning by mistakes? Because in my case, some of my most memorable lessons come from turning mistakes into into learnings. Do you experience a similar thing? We are usually afraid of making mistakes. Yeah. I mean,
1: I've made a lot of mistakes (laughs) and I've learned a lot from them. So I agree. Ultimately, I kind of subscribe to the theory of if you're not making mistakes, you're not moving fast enough. Meaning like if you're kind of wandering through life and not making any mistakes, it's like, well, then you're just not making enough decisions. You're not doing enough, right? And maybe you're doing a lot, but you could do more. So I kind of subscribe to that. But I also subscribe to the fact that knowledge sharing is king. So at my last company, I had 12 people in the customer success role. And what we would do is every week during our weekly meeting, every single person on the team had to bring a learning, 60-second learning from the week prior. So if you didn't learn something in the last week, you like didn't pay attention, right? Like you should learn a lot of things in a week, but it's a 60 second learning, very basic stuff. It could be a learning of, it could be a, a soft skill learning, right? Like, you know, I found out that if I ask this question at this time, I get this response and this is kind of what I want, or it could be, hey, I learned something new about our software. If you do this, then this and this and this, right? But if you're constantly sharing those learnings as a team, the team overall is gonna make less mistakes. So if you have 10 people on your team, that's 10 learnings a week, that's 40 learnings a month, right? And you can multiply it out from there, 480 learnings a year. So I'm a big fan of sharing that across the team preventing some of those mistakes. But I also believe that everyone's going to make mistakes. And again, if you're not making mistakes, you're just not doing quite enough.
0: If you were to whisper a piece of advice in a new CSM year to help them sidestep common challenges, what would it be?
1: So this is my favorite question of all time. And I'm going to, this is, and the reason it's my favorite question of all time I tell my teams this weekly. Doesn't matter if you're new or if you're, you know, 5 years in or 10 years into a company. The answer is you are the expert. This is the advice. So, if you've spent a few weeks learning a platform, you're brand new hire, right? You're 4 weeks in. You've spent 4 weeks learning the platform, you've onboarded one company or two companies, you've taken 20 support cases, you are officially in the top 1% of people in the world with that platform, officially. If you look at all the people in the world and all the people that have solved 20 support cases, onboarded one or two customers, or learn the platform for four weeks, it's a very, very, very small number. So you have to have confidence in yourself. As a new employee, as an employee 10 years down the line, you have to be confident that you are the expert and you know more than most people in the world. So when you get on the calls with customers or you're sending emails or you're having customer interactions, you should be confident that you're the expert. But one piece of advice that I believe everyone everyone should, should take, and if you're a manager listening to this, you should go tell your team that they're experts. The morale boost, the confidence boost that you're going to see off of this is, is massive.
0: As you bring this interview to a close, I'd like to take a broader look and reflecting on the evolution of the customer success industry as a whole and where it might be headed. What's your vision for the future of CS and where should upcoming CSM focus their energy to stay ahead?
1: Great question. I'm going to go against the grain here (laughs) and I'm going to say future CS is the same CS as today. So I'm not saying things aren't going to change. Things are going to change. What I am saying is, again, we overcomplicate customer success. Everyone's looking for the latest, greatest metric to measure, or the buzzword. Or there's there are people that say CS is the new sales, right? Well, it's like I I hate to burst everyone's bubble, but like sales is still sales and CS is still CS, right? They're different. They're They're great roles, right? Both of them are awesome roles in themselves. They're just different. I I think the goals of CS are going to remain the same. The goals of of CS are going to be retain customers, increase current growth, right? Or increase current revenue, current customers. I think sales goals are the same, right? Increase baseline new revenue. So my advice to CS as a whole in CSMs is is don't get distracted. Focus on the few things that matter most, which are provide a great experience for the customer, over-deliver on things that you've promised, increase usage, right? Pay attention to, to their usage patterns and help them increase it. Get renewals and help show an increased value to the customer, right? If you do all of those things, then you're like the best CSM in the world, right? If you're doing all those things and really honing in and focusing on those things, figure out the tactics that work for you. And there's, again, there's a million tactics and a million different things that you can do to to increase those numbers. But at the end of the day, it's like, let's focus on the most important things, right? The customer. If we can give that customer an amazing experience and we can increase their usage and we can drive results for them, the rest just kind of falls into place. There's gonna be technology that changes. There are gonna be metrics that change. There are gonna be lots of things that change in this industry, but the end goal is is still the same.
0: Well, thank you very much for your time and for the hour. It was a very nice discussion and I'm glad we had the chance to to do it. Thank you.